Hi everyone, thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast, your weekly guide through all things drawn, imagined, sculpted, and in the case of today's episode, crafted in CGI-tastic wonder. Just a quick note before we start, Chris and I will be off in September, we've got um, an academic year to prepare for, we've got holidays to take, and we've got, um, I don't know, deck chairs to sit in. So we're going to take a month off from the blog and the podcast, um, don't worry, we'll be back in October with both in earnest. We've already got episodes in the can that I'm really excited to share with you. Uh, and today's episode's an absolute corker to finish the so-called season of fantasy animation for the year off on, so I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget uh, to support the podcast, and if you like what you're listening to, please do support the podcast. Um, you can leave a review on iTunes, uh, give us five stars and tell us why you like it. Uh, you can subscribe uh, and make sure you're following us on your podcast subscription service. You can tell friends, family, and anyone else who will listen to you about the show. Um, you can write to us at fananimresearch at gmail.com, and you can use the same handle, that's fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research, to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and take part in the conversations that are happening then. We also have that thing called a website, and it's fantasy-animation.org. But otherwise, you just need to enjoy the show. Hi listeners and welcome to the latest episode of the Fancy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. So um, this week's film, or this, yeah, this film that we're looking at this week is um, uh, a, a strange one, let's say, or one that's got a lot uh, of stuff I think we can both say from a fantasy and an animation perspective. We're looking at Speed Racer, so the 2008, I would say sports, comedy, calm action film with a bit of anime with a bit of CG with I mean it's a lot of things at once mm -hmm. um, directed by the Wachowskis and yeah I mean from an animation perspective I think there's so much to say about um, it's well it's bonkers use of lens flare and kind of camera work uh, obviously the stuff around the kind of digital backlot the virtual backlot the fact that this was looks like it was filmed indoors and was filmed indoors across about 60 days uh, and I think it's an interesting moment to ref or a film that we can use to reflect on kind of Hollywood's relationship to CGI and maybe CGI's kind of elastic limit at this point. So lots of stuff to say around, I guess it's industrial place as much as this aesthetic place. Alex, this is going to be good. Talk to me about fantasy and speed racer. Yeah, I mean, there's, I'm sure we can talk about you know, hyperbolic film style, uh, co comic characters in every sure. sense of the word. I know you animation lot like to take comics and claim it as one of yours, but I'm having it back. Thank you very much. Always uh, good to talk about the relationship between fantasy storytelling and, and, and visual comics and things like that. And that might come up as we think about the way this film tries to kind of replicate its its source, and yeah. its kind of uh, its its origins. So this, yes, and so this this week uh, or this uh, episode looking at speed racer. Um, is intriguing for us because Speed Racer was the choice of our special guest. So a film I'd not seen, um, although I thought I'd seen it, and Alex, you <laughs> have seen, seen it. it before. So Speed Racer is, as I said, the choice of our guest, um, and we're thrilled to be joined by uh, Tim Roby, who is a film critic who has written widely on all kinds of cinema and occasionally books for the Daily Telegraph for over the last 20 years. He's also the co-editor um, of a book that sits on my shelf, the DVD Stack from 2006, um, which is a guide to the, the best versions of movies available globally and hurrah for physical media. Um, and he's also turned up in a multitude of places discussing film, including Radio 4's Front Row, The Film Programme, Monocle FM Radio and BBC Film. His Twitter profile also describes him as box office poison and as having views that are, quote, indecipherable, though I'm almost certain that <laughs> neither one of those things is or isn't true. Um, but Tim, thank you very much for, for joining us. Hey, yeah, good to be here, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as I said, the, uh, the the choice of Speed Racer was something that kind of came from you when we, we asked you and you very kindly agreed to, to come on the, the podcast. You, you said that might you consider, or when we said, what kind of fantasy animation would you like to look at? You said, might you consider Speed Racer, which actually 
seems to fit perfectly, I think, with a lot of what, what Alex and I like to talk about on this podcast. So why Speed Racer? Of all the, the kind of things, the places that you could have gone, um, you've, picked, you've picked a film to which the, the phrase, what a ride, can be legitimately <laughs> applied. So why Speed Racer? Um, I was looking for an excuse to, to watch Speed Racer again. Uh, having only seen it once back when it came out in 2008. Yeah. Uh, but it has a strange wipe clean quality. So much like you, you thought you'd seen it yes. and haven't. I almost have seen it, but th think I haven't in a strange way. It's like I still don't know what I think about it. It's going to wipe clean even after, even after the, uh, the, the second viewing now, it's just, just it's bouncing around in my head, just yeah. doing a million different things at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of thought to myself, fantasy animation, yes, it kind of is, as well as being about 60,000 other things at yeah. the same time. Sure. Um, but also, I did think that the it, it would have potential to discuss the kind of like strange blurring of animation and live action that was going on in this period. Yeah, and, yeah. And so I guess we should try and set the scene. I'm aware this is a film that I think it's got a bit of a cult following yes. right now. But I, it's not a film that did particularly well at the time. So there might be people out there who either have not seen Speed Racer. I mean, how? Um, or, or people, it sounds like, who have seen Speed Racer but don't know they have because yeah. <laughs> uh, of the effect of the movie. And, and perhaps the context of, of when the film came. It's a really interesting period for lots of different reasons that it came out in 2008. So, so could you just, uh, for the listeners' benefit, what, what, when, what's, the, what's the story of Speed Racer? You can tell the story of either how it was made or the story of the film itself because both are useful to unpack. So an idea of making this film or a live action version of Speed Racer, which existed previously as a Japanese anime animation series manga situation in the, yeah. in the 60s, uh, a Hollywood uh, adaptation of it had been knocking around since the early 90s, I believe. And uh, Joel Silver became attached at a certain point, but there were phases when they were going to try and do it with Johnny Depp. There was a phase when they were going to do it with Vince Vaughn. Various people got on board. These are very different movies Finally, in, my <laughs> mind, in my mind. Finally, the Wachowskis um, latched onto it, and uh, they thought, right, here we go, we can do something with this. They clearly were fans of the original material, uh, and I think uh, they, were look they were looking to do something much brighter and more family-friendly mm -hmm. than the Matrix films. And I think, you know, regardless of your feelings about the, the sequel, the, the second and yeah, third yeah, Matrix yeah. films, which had kind of been relatively viewed as disappointing, I think. Uh, they really wanted to kind of grab in a big family audience with a film and also sort of push some boundaries technologically at this time. Um, 2008 was a funny year for films. It probably best remembered for The Dark Knight coming out, uh, but a year of some quite... Kung Fu Panda was out that year, in yes, fact. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the fourth Indiana Jones movie came out oh, yeah. and really let everyone down that summer. So there was sort of space in the market for a, a wacky film like Speed Racer to come and and do really well, it didn't. And <laughs> yeah. the, the other reason that I chose it is because I'm kind of interested at the moment in big Hollywood flops, and this does count as one, it lost a lot of money. Uh, and the reasons behind flops and the reasons why films didn't connect uh, at the time in the way they were meant to, mm. that Warner Brothers were ultimately quite disappointed by its performance, because they threw a lot of money into it promotionally. Mm. Uh, and the questions we can be asking are about, you know, is the film almost too too crazy and slightly ahead of its time in its kind of wackiness? Uh, and is that what put off an audi a wider audience from coming to it? So it yeah. sounds like there are two, well, from surprise, surprise, it sounds like there are two things, and one of them is to do with fantasy and one of them is to do with animation. I wonder how that popped into my head after how many uh, episodes we've been doing. But there's two things being fought through in this era. There's the issue of like VFX and their role in the industry because... You know, this is the era where, you know, we've got virtual production, we've got, you know, the influx of CGI, things like we were talking before recording, things like Sin City had come out. So there's a how far can we go with CGI? How far can we go with yep. these kind of, with these kind of uh, deliberately artificial pictorial visuals in, in, uh, infused with, it, with live action? And then the other battleground we've got going on is it's, it's the year of the Dark Knight. It's the year of Kung Fu Panda. I think it's also the year of Iron Man, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yes, not only is it the year of Iron Man, but uh, very tellingly for this film's box office failure, Iron Man opened the same weekend. Right. And Iron Man took Speed Racer to the cleaners that Oof. weekend. Yeah. I don't okay. think anyone quite saw the enormous success of Iron Man coming. Yeah, yeah. And 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 retrospectively, we can see Iron Man as the sort of, you know, if, if Dark Knight is the end of one type of superhero movie, one type of fantasy of very kind of, you know, pessimistic, dystopian, 
biopic post 9-11, mm-hmm. working through sort of the, the decade of trauma of, of US foreign policy, and then brisk, bright new future of Iron Man. It's jokes, it's fun, it's flashy, it's visual. Marvel Cinematic Universe, my God, what a time we're all going to have. This film sits at an odd place between those two things. And the one how, as you say, it sounds like it's much more optimistic, it's brighter, it's shinier, it's, but it's also quite cynical in many ways at the same time. So it sounds like lots of things being thought through in this year as to what kind of big movies we want to see going That's true. forward. That's true. And actually, a lot of the themes in this film are obviously kind of quite, quite conspicuously kind of anti-capitalist, which is a funny thing for a massive corporation <laughs> to be trying to sell to us sure. uh, in the process of also selling us the film. Um, and there's plenty to discuss about that. But yeah, I do feel as though the idea of making a kind of live-action cartoon, which obviously filmmakers had dabbled with well, well before this, what, what interests me with this is that they, they push the cartoonishness of it in the most 2D possible way. Mm-hmm. So that the backgrounds in this film often feel as though they're occupying, they're jammed into the same space as the foreground. They're literally competing with each other. And there's one, there's one particular visual trick that the film does so <laughs> many times, which is a kind of sideways wipe yeah. with someone's head uh, passing across the screen and then the next image comes up. And it's almost all on a kind of rotating loop. Yeah. Uh, but it's all very 2D. And I think the, the other key thing about this film is that it just predates the 3D craze, which yeah. came in in 2009, really, with Avatar. Okay. And then all of those post-conversion 3D films that came along, like kind of uh, Clash of the Titans sure. and so on, that we went through an era for a few years of everything had to be 3D and have a point this kind of huge perspective. There's some abandons perspective, really. Every, everything <laughs> everything is on the same plane, which is what was so crazy about it visually as an experience, I think. Yeah. No, I've got one of my notes is continuity editing and the 180 degree rule mean nothing. But um, I was, I'm interested in its late kind of or 2008-ness um, because I guess the shift in the way that I was thinking about the, the, the digital quality as something that begins in the 90s where, where you have films about the internet and you have like the net and hackers and you have films that are about this wild frontier of, of what virtual space might look like and you have lots of like Lord Marman and lo- loads of movies where characters are plugging. I mean, you could trace it back to Tron when we looked at uh, Tron. Um, but towards the, I think towards the end of the, the or the late 90s, early 2000s, you get um, kind of films that are about VR. So you get The Matrix to some extent, The 13th Floor, Existence, The Cell, um, this idea of the construction of cyberspace. So technology is sort of in and around the production of these films, but it's also being folded into to, to narratives. And then in 2002, you get the terming of the virtual backlot. So this um, essentially blue and, or, or green screen space, um, I guess popularised by Sky Captain, The World of Tomorrow a couple of years after, but also just running down the list of films, Sin City, Mirror Mask, a remake of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, hilarious, um, 300, Speed Racer, The Spirit, uh, Avatar, and then the sequel to Sin City. So the film is very much absorbing or is a symptom of, as you said, this kind of technological frontier in, in Hollywood. We've had technology being folded into these films, mm-hmm. and now we're getting... Because I'm really struck in the, in the, in the film the relationship between the film's digital urban scape and then the role of animation and how we're supposed to... Characters' imagination is often signalled through like drawing yeah. and, and, and versus the digital quality of this, the city, which is now supposed to take on the role of reality. So I think there's lots to say about the virtual backlot, the kinds of production, uh, I guess the, the, the workflow, production workflow, these kinds of movies short on on filming time, years in the making in terms of post-production. So I think it's 2008-ness is, is sort of super important for kind of placing or thinking about digital techniques, the role of the digital grading suite as these films pass through. Um, yeah, so I'd love to talk about that. Mm. Do you think the film's being pessimistic or optimistic in its use of technology then? That's a question for both of you and a question, I guess, for me because it's impossible to actually answer properly. Um, but I, I was thinking that when I was watching it today. It, uh, on one hand... You can read this movie as like, as you said, it's that delicious Hollywood contradiction of let's make a big <laughs> franchise movie based on an existing IP that's anti-capitalist. Like it's like let's make Av- Avatar, the green movie that hasn't got any trees in it. You know, like you know, uh, like it's that lovely. Yeah. On one hand, you can just go, well, that's weird. But then the other hand, like, is it tr- is it asking us? Is it you? It's I. You said the word real, Chris. I'm not sure this film wants us to no. see its images as real in any way shape mm. I don't think it's going for photorealism and I'm wondering why it's not doing that yeah I think it, it really just wants to kind of break free of all of that and it, it kind of wants to dive back into p- the pure 
kind of the, the, the speed of the line and, and all of that shit. And, you know, the, it basically, uh, it's, it's, it's almost surreally not interested in tactile mm-hmm. visual reality, no. yeah. um, it, which is kind of cool. And I think unlike some of the other films you mentioned where the digital sheen of the, you know, the, the, the virtual, what do you call it? The, the backlog. The, the backlog. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't really work in some genres for me at all. I, I feel as though you need the feeling of grit under the fingernails and kind of blood and sweat mm-hmm. uh, to make something like 300 come off. And yes, I, yes. I don't think it does because I think you yeah. just feel as though you're watching something shiny and digitized and a million miles away from, you know, ancient Sparta. It just doesn't yeah. work. Whereas with this material, I think it does work and it kind of engages with it. And it also is sort of quite interested in you know, the history of animation and there's sort of this mm-hmm. fun fun games going on with the kid doing drawings. And oh. there's a notebook at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. There's a little homage to Edward Mybridge with these zebras spinning past on the track towards the end as well, which is kind of neat. There's all these little games that's playing and it's sort of saying, this is, this is the way um, uh, motion pictures were first captured and here's what we're doing now. We're going to keep it going. We're going to keep the, yeah. the process moving. So I see it in that respect as kind of optimistic. I think it's sort of saying we can keep livening up this formula. We've not come to a dead end at all. And in fact, the the finale of the film, the climax, is, is almost a light speed abstraction, isn't it? it just, you, yeah. don't, you don't really know what's even happening. It yeah. just turns into a tumbling kind of mess of colours being flung out at you and you're like, wow, you've, you've gone for it there. Yeah. It's like, yeah. so, so that's really interesting, Tim, because I actually think, therefore, we, we, when we speak to um, industry people on the podcast, quite often they'll make this distinction, which we don't really make, between like VFX oh, yeah. and animation, and animation yeah. right? And animation being designed and performed and kind of character-led and all this sort of stuff, and VFX being added the to... Elements yeah, the elements. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. It almost feels like there's a playoff in this film between VFX and animation. I'm using kind of quotation marks in that things that are are on the side of the goodies in this film are is animation. You know, it's creativity, it's color, it's it's pure abstract. You know, art. This film is obviously interested in the idea of speed racer as artist and and driving as art and the corporate world being this kind of control over it. Mm. And yet the cityscape almost feels like you know it's almost it's almost deliberately bad. VFX, right? It's VFX like, and that's quite alienating, and that's kind of the point, right? When they first, you know, the film starts in this sort of small town, wherever, where is it? It's Pastel World, Super Mario Land. It's a bit, it's also a bit like kind of 1950s Tim Burton suburbia. Sure. (laughs) A little bit Edward Scissorhands, a little bit Charlie uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, like, gone through, like, yeah, the Super Mario World paint rendering process, right? Uh, And then they go to the big city there, uh, you know, uh, Roger Allen turns up and and, and absolutely saves the movie and, Mm -hmm. uh, and takes us on a ride but then I think all that stuff is meant to be deliberately alienating these massive cityscapes that don't seem to have any depth they don't seem to have well depth in in both senses of the word right I I, I totally hear what you're saying and I think the film kind of deliberately pushes that Mm. in a way that is more honest to me than something like the uh, Star Wars prequels where I'm often equally alienated yeah. by whatever the backdropness is going on that George Lucas has told his army of uh, you know <laughs> of compositors to, yes. to stick in I'm like that doesn't make any sense to me and yet in those films I feel as though you're meant to think that's a, some sort of reality or whereas in this film it's like nah no don't worry about that it's it's sort of sketchy yeah. it's 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 sort of almost scrappy it's, it's superficial don't worry about that don't worry about that we're, 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 we're going to put your focus in on the foreground yeah, yeah. so I'd, I mean I'd like to, to pick up Alex's point about about the film not being interested in photorealism because I think it's not interested in realism but I think it's very interested in photorealism because photorealism essentially is is the the replication of lens-based media okay. so when the digital comes along you have a number of scholars that are trying to come up with a vocabulary to discuss the digital and it's crucially digital realism and often it's it's these are terms that are invested in trying to figure out what digital technology is but also what it's replicating and lens-based media so you get terms like second order realism which is not not an image of the real world but an almost like um a, a rendering of a photograph of the real world so there's you're trying to replicate not the real but the real as mediated through a camera um wally is a fantastic example released the same year of of that sort of playing with with the imperf- imperfections of lenses and lens flare and things like this So you get people like Andy Daly calling it second-order realism. You get a book called Remediation, which is basically old media being replicated in new media. And there's always a sort of... It's like those hyper-real paintings of... of, Or paintings that are designed to look like photographs. It's not of the real, it's 
it's one step removed yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So photorealism is the next sort of stage in that. It's it's lens-based media. It's it's there are a number of scholars writing on digital effects which are the way in which lens flare is used to try and connote that the digital is filmable, somehow filmable. And this film is rife with digital effects like that. So um, lens flare, uh, this technique that I was looking up, uh, bokeh, this mm. sort of out of focus, like the film is really interested in cameras at the same time as flattening the image, at the same time as it being this surreal space of, of anarchy and color and ne neon, neon occurs a lot in my notes. So I'm trying to reconcile that with the fact that there is this other world surrealist element going on, but all the time the film is trying to make it look like it's in front of a camera. It's true, and it's the first time the Wachowskis used uh, ultra HD cameras yeah. to shoot a, a movie. And th uh, there's something about it. They are fascinated by the idea of pretending, in a way, yeah, yeah, that yeah, most exactly. of this film is being shot when clearly 93% of it is not being shot, but being kind yeah. of added. So why is um, that? Then? Why, why is that? I can I can see. You know, there's lots of online articles about JJ Abrams' overuse of lens flare in movies to try and the digital is you know the dinosaurs or whatever whatever the monster it was there. But even though we know so, so what in a film that is so patently or or trying to go against, I, I don't know what, what what's happening because there's these two competing poles of of kind of visual imagery going on that this is in no way this is bonkers and a vortex of color that couldn't possibly have happened and here's another wipe and here's another wipe and at the same time it's like no this race is happening in front of a camera and there are moments especially in the chases with the chase or the the the, the race that takes probably forty five minutes to an hour of the film. Especially in the desert, there's a lot of lens flare and, and pulled focus, and and I'm trying to reconcile those two seemingly opposing surreal and photoreal at the same time. Yeah, that's one of the best sequences. I think the desert bit. Yeah, yeah. The palette is simplified uh, compared to a lot of the other noisiness, and when you were inside that sort of indoor tournament spaces, it's 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 just just the kind of dust coming off it. It's yeah. it's really strong. But um, yeah, I, I think it's possibly because the races need some sense of that being broadcast at the same time as ah, they're being yeah, watched yeah. by us. So you have these commentator characters coming on and kind of saying, did you just see that and all of this? So we kind of need some sense of a frame that this, this thick whole thing is being watched by everyone on screen as well yeah. as by us. Because usually whenever we're watching the race, with Emil Hirsch or as the main character or whoever it might be, yeah. his family are on the sidelines watching it at the same time. I think that that's the, the film's m method of kind of gluing us all together into the same spaces yeah. to basically say, this is all on camera. Uh, and I think yeah. that's what it's doing. And, and you're what you are watching this thing, because I suppose there's a nice comparison between the, those kinds of sequences where they use these photoreal effects and the fact that there are moments in the film about old kind of black and white footage, mm -hmm. that there's a sort of equivalence yeah. going on between, no, this is this is being documented. It's being falsified, but it's being documented. I don't know, there's, there's a nice is mirror it? between uh, the grainy black and white footage and the overuse, but the use of lens flare in this movie. Perhaps then, if it, the film is interested in photorealism, that doesn't, it, it's not, there's a difference between being interested in photorealism and wanting to be photorealistic. Yes, the, yeah, I think, it's I the, think you're it's right, the, the film is interested in different ways of, Mediating, yeah, I think that's you know, right. the film, the narrative's about that, right? The narrative's about the race and and characters' perception of the race, and you know, the big kind of you know speech that Roger Allen gives Speed Racer to try and convince him, isn't it? Is that you think this moment where this 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 guy won this race that mattered so much to you and your family happened? It didn't happen like that at all. It's mediated for you to think it goes like that, and that's yeah. what sport is. It's a mediated, spontaneous thing that's actually just controlled by big business. That's that's it. That's that's maybe the key theme of the film is the idea of authenticity in sport yeah. and the the and the film sort of tries to uh, convince us that authenticity can only really happen if you remove money from the equation which is of course completely impossible in sport so so in that sense the film is fantasy at its purest it's sure. like it's, it, this 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 ideal of sport could not possibly exist um, but i do like that idea and i like the i like the sort of uh, the spin that it puts on um, racing as something, a pure activity inside your head, mm. rather than something that is being bought and sponsored and commodified and, you know, yeah. converted into someone else's uh, stock portfolio, which is essentially what happens mm. in the later stage of film. One point I wanted to make earlier about um, when you were talking about the sort of the odd um, paradox of the anti-capitalist <laughs> message, the other, the other aspect of that that's quite interesting is the the idea of the source material being this kind of Japanese sure. uh, comic stuff. Uh, and so we have to sort of negotiate the idea of this being 
an American blockbuster mm -hmm. shot in Germany with a, <laughs> with a weirdly Australian vibe involving a lot of the sporting cast. Very much like to talk about but, that. But also, <laughs> but also like four or five small roles for Japanese actors just because uh -huh. we've had to make sure they're in there. But also the plotting involving those characters is almost always a kind of negotiation about money. It's like, you know, the, yeah. the, it's, it's, uh, it's Roger yeah. Allen's character sitting down opposite the Japanese character sort of saying, What's our, how are we going to strike the deal on this one then? Which is quite weird, given that clearly, you know, Warner Brothers bought the rights to the Japanese comic from yeah. from Japanese uh, rights owners, and we're sort of like we're we're thrashing out the deal basically, even as even as we're watching the film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a good point. I think yeah, and, and I think if the film was made now, we might have like the press having you know, accusations of sort of whitewashing on things like that by taking this Japanese cultural product and and you know casting Emil Hirsch and Christina Ricci in the two lead roles. Yeah. And they John have to Goodman. Beef up. They'd have to beef up the. Japanese Japanese cast for sure. You yeah. would have thought so, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there, yeah, that that's uh, yes. So no, I, I, that's another thing. The film's yeah. negotiating on and off screen at the same time. Yeah. Um, Tim, you mentioned this kind of kind of no, like no, the noise of the film. It reminded me when we did an episode on um, um, Spider Verse and the kind of describing the visual crunch. And and I, and I was thinking about this film through that because this is also the year, a couple of years before Scott Pilgrim. And and so the, these films that come along that sort of really try and do something innovative and, and as you were describing that the, the Wachowskis moving away from a certain kind of storytelling, doing something that's a little bit more family friendly. But there's a lot going on in this in this film, and there's all, but there's also a lot going on in Spider Verse. And I'm not. It's not that these films are one landed and one didn't, of course. But both are trying to do something quite radical with the form. Um, Scott Pilgrim, I don't, I've not seen it, but I think did better. Than or was a bit more well received than it was well received. But it, it lost money though still, yeah. and there's something about this kind of manic yeah. digital yeah, yeah. mayhem that it has proved off-putting to audiences quite a lot. Except in the case of Spider Verse, which is, I suppose exists in a more pure realm of animation, yeah. uh, which people are willing to buy into. Interesting. Uh, yeah. But as soon as you add a live action element, uh, unless you're very sort of careful and sort of you, you know what you're doing, a la Roger Rabbit, I think people feel as though they don't quite know what they're watching. And that there's a general um, confusion around this film, I think. There's a general bewilderment about what it, <laughs> what, what it really yeah. is as an object. And it's, it's happening in this room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is it, I've it, seen it, I think. It's a bewildering thing, and yeah. it's a bewildering experience. People always talk about how headachey they found it, right. for example, because of the sheer kind of rush of the imagery. But also, uh, there are sequences in, in the film, watching it just now, where I, I kind of lost track of what was oh, yeah. really supposed to be happening between the objects. And, the, and then there are others where I'm like, oh, I, I've got the hang of this one. And so my brain is constantly asking me, have I, have, is it me? Have I just missed the point of this sequence? Have I got the point of this one? Uh, have I failed the film in some way during some phases of it? Or is the film not entirely coherent in that moment? Yeah. You know, there's, it, I can't, I'm constantly in doubt while I watch it about whether it's basically constructed well or whether I have, I'm not quite quick on the mark yeah. during that sequence. If I've had a slight brain fart, if you like, and yeah. I haven't quite got the hang of it. Yeah. So I, I, I can understand why people are both a headachey and be bewildered yeah. all the way through it. No, uh, I, I think, I th well, I, I think agree. there's a, probably a middle ground, which is that I think some of that abruptness and some of that chaoticness is is in, you know, it's, it's part of a series of, of seem to be quite deliberate choices. The editing style is extremely kind of abrupt, scenes will end just a couple of seconds oh, before you think they're going to yeah. end and we, then suddenly you'll be somewhere else. I mean, Christian, we never see a race start, do we, basically? I no, mean, no, we're, no. we're always plunged into the very middle of a race and we're like, yes. oh, wow, he seems to be doing well, but uh, we'd, where are yeah. we, you know? Yeah, 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 and like things like, you know, like there's that, there's a, the opening sequence where we get him oh. going around a track and we go into basically everybody's mind That's and amazing, learn yeah. who those characters are. It's like flashback is being used, but in the normal way flashback is used is the kind of, you know, Casablanca, orderly, right, here's your main character, let's go in their mind let's see this pivotal moment in their life that will define the rest of their personality let's come back out now you know who that is let's move on this is very much like in here in here in here in here in here it's um, mad it's like know. flashbacks nested within flashbacks there's a flash forward at one point mm. where Roger Allen's character says you're going to lose that next race and then we watch that race and then we cut back to Roger Allen saying see I told you so yeah. and it's like what and for a brief yeah. second you're like so hang on did that happen yes. or is that not happened and yeah, then yeah. it cuts past the sequence isn't it yeah. the, the, the Wachowskis have done that in a few movies 
movies. There's a film Bound where yeah, they yeah. do that, where they basically do the heist. They explain what the heist is going to be whilst the heist happens on screen. And whilst you're watching the entire heist, you're not sure whether you're um, watching something already playing out or playing out the way they think it's going to play out, right? And there's they love playing with time in that way. And it's used really... That's got to be deliberate. And it's almost oh, yeah. like the movie is made for the kid that Speed Racer is at the beginning of the movie who can't really sit still and is busy like drawing pictures of his car. I mean, we're talking about neurodiversity. It's, it's very much ADHD that moment, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. He's like jittering his leg up and down and yeah. his, his pencil is ready to kind of like uh, sketch out this car in the corner of his notebook and he, he is so restless, he just needs to get in that car. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And the film's restless. Yes. The film is stylistically restless. The film, the film has taken a lot of candy uh, it's shoved it down its throat and it's literally just bouncing off it for uh -huh. two hours. Yeah, yeah. so I'd, uh, yeah, I, I, I would be interested because actually that's a the, the, what we want from films is probably, you know, I'm thinking a lot about the issue of neurodiversity in cinema at the moment, but like there might be something to it. Like actually this film isn't made for the... For, for you know it, it, it you know it's not made for that uh, the people that want the film to go slower it's made for the people that want films to go faster quite right yeah and it's it's not only made for the the main character in school but it's made for his uh, his sort of sidekick younger brother who looks a bit like Sandy Toxvik uh, and the, and the, and, the, and the sidekick chimp that also yeah. seems to be part of the family yeah. it's it's made for the chimp almost sure. yeah. right. now that yeah, is yeah. a part of it there's a, there's a comedy chimp and and lovable quote marks like younger brother sidekick comedy character who is that is a very different movie going on in the corner there uh, what did we all think of that bit that i think i've said quite a few times in this podcast a lot of films could be improved by removing the ill-advised comedy duo that's placed in the corner for the laughs yes, yes. <laughs> um i so in terms of this sort of maelstrom this i like this idea of this manic digital mayhem um just before, yeah, yeah just, just go back there's there's in the opening sequence, I had to think a lot about what was going on because of the slip between past and present. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of racing against the ghost car of his brother. So it took me a while to, to get that. And I think part of the reason is, in a live-action film, you might have a visual effect that connotes that connotes some sort of temporal disjuncture or something, a, a portal or, I don't know, something where you have a visual effect. Because everything is a visual effect, it kind of flattens everything temporally because everything seems to be happening at the same time. And at the level of production, it was, because they were editing and animating these things at the same time. So normally, if you have a live action, like I can imagine a version of this that's him driving in a live action car, and the ghost, the spooky ghost, done in visual effects, comes next to him, and he races together. But because everything in the film is, apart from him, the human, is digital, that sort of changes the way that you view the film, or in kind of the, the spectatorial experience of the film, because it's not so easily discernible what is past and what is present that you can often make you can often make those decisions based on the technology whereas here everything is is digital and so yeah it kind of democratizes it or flattens it out in terms of the, the chronology it is like everything's happening at the same time yeah. and it springs those strategies on you with no warning or with no yeah. kind of yeah with no kind of lead up it just suddenly there's a ghost car and he jumps, <laughs> a ghost car. he doesn't quite catch up with him and you're like oh i see right yeah. he hasn't built he hasn't beat his brother's track record yeah. so yeah. i think that is a function of the the this, these sorts of this sort of blue screen digital virtual backlot thing where everything is in effect it's like the classic special effects discourse you know you know what special effect is by defining and what it's not but in a film where everything seems to be in effect you're like right i'm trying to figure out I'm trying to get my anchorage. What what are the hooks in this film that I'm latching onto to make sense of space and time? As you said, we never see a race start. Very rarely do you get like an establishing shot and then a series of shots that break down the space. You're like, okay, so now I'm just seeing a face in profile. And so there's it, lots. It, it of... literally cuts to the chase whenever it can, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but the so I was thinking therefore that that in relation to your question of the the the, the comic relief, mm -hmm. which give us sense they they. The characters are kind of the thing that holds this together because they're at least relatively consistent and they move from... And you get a sense of who they are and their relationships to each other because the world around them is so <laughs> is so kind of chaotic. So I, with, with those characters, the chimp and the brother, who symbolically get very sugar-rushed and... Yeah, you know, sure, sure. They, they seem to provide at least a degree of kind of... I don't want to say emotional stability, but they're kind of the same the whole way through. They just sort of pop in and out whereas everything else in the film is so unmoored or untethered in some way. They're at least giving it... You know what you're going to get in scenes with them, I think that's what I mean. They, they, they sort of... They, yeah, I they think. have that function in theory. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure... I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure, that, I'm sure that Wachowskis would actually really reject 
our idea of getting rid of them because they're like, no, it's for them. It's yeah. for and those characters yeah. are the the, the kind of stand-in for the the child um, viewers. Um, so I don't want to kind of suggest that, but I do find them very lacking in charm, sure, uh, sure. which is for me a problem, but possibly shouldn't be as much for me. And it was less of a problem for me this time. I do think, though, I will say that I think uh, characterization is not the Wachowski's strong suit, mm. except in Bound. Bound is the one exception because those three characters are really strong and very well defined. But I think even in The Matrix, The Matrix is far too involved in making those characters look cool. Uh, making all of its world and its characters yeah. look cool. I don't feel as though things happen to the characters in the Matrix films, but, th but I don't feel as though they have any character yeah. in a strange way. Yeah. Uh, and that is largely true of, of most of the people in this film, except for Roger Allen, who we'll come on to in a second. But I think mostly they're like placeholder characters who are sort of cast with archetypal faces. And it, it's sort of like, yeah, sure, it's a sweet enough family. You've got yeah, you know, yeah. John Goodman and... Uh, Susan Sarandon as the mum and dad, which is sort of earnest mum and dad. I find it very odd that they cast uh, Christina Ricci to play someone not related to Susan Sarandon because they have a very similar look. Yeah. Um, and she's the classmate, and I don't think she's entirely well cast. And with Emil Hirsch, I kind of like him around this era. He was good in Into the World the year before, uh, and he, okay. this was his moment to shine. And I think ever since this film's failure, he's not really had mm -hmm. a leading man opportunity again, particularly. Uh, and I think he's he's got something, but I, I I wonder if they could have cast someone with a bit more of a kind of moody, haunted kind of James Dean vibe, yeah. possibly James Franco, someone like that, maybe would have clicked better. Yeah. But I just I think the Wachowskis are just a bit like we don't care too much about the characters having any depth. They don't care. They're like we're going to bounce things off these people. We just need to roughly know who they are, yeah. and the kid and the chimp will be fine, and you know yeah. just feed them lots of sweets, and we don't need to worry too much. Yeah. That's their sort of attitude to it. I wonder whether this is a fun again going back to the the tech technology you often hear a lot about actors when they talk about having to act in these conditions talking to a tennis ball on a stick or all of the, all of the sorts of the, the 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 discourses of fortitude and I was in this costume for so long and I had to act in and I couldn't didn't didn't get a chance to go to the toilet and, and visual effects often has this strange relationship with labor where it's very abstracted and, and yeah actors having to perform to things that aren't there and having to react in slightly different ways to things that aren't there and and I wonder whether that you can actually see those things in the movie. It's not just a fun story that Ewan McGregor tells about the Star Wars prequels. It's not just that these characters weren't there. That we, again, we have this kind of flattening effect. So I wondered if that's if the the digital constitution of the film, the virtual backlot, is having an effect, or you feel like it is having an effect in flattening the performances, not into anything. Um, unconvincing but more into archetypes let's yeah, say yeah and I can slightly quote Viggo Mortensen here because he uh, <laughs> one of the we all do one of the, episode, rare, yeah. one of the rare interviews I'm actually proud of was with him because he decided to tell me he only re really likes The Fellowship of the Ring uh, because when they went and shot that film it was as far as he saw it, it was actors acting Right, right. They, the whole cast were, were out there and they were just on set and they were, you know, workshopping and acting the, the, the movie. And he feels there's a sort of, there's an acted essence to that film yeah. that he thinks was completely sacrificed in the second and third Lord of the Rings films because digital overload just took place. You know, they were like, they suddenly were given a whole load more money by New Line uh, and they just said, well, okay, fine, we'll shoot a whole load more and um, we'll green screen it and we'll add yeah. in more effects and we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll, add, we'll do some pickup shots and this so-and-so, but we don't need you on set at the same time yeah. and all that. That's the moment where uh, the CGI revolution, if you like, occurred in, in a way is 2001, the moment yeah. that Fellowship of the Ring becomes a big success and they decide we can now follow through and make the next two films, here's loads more money, here's loads more CGI money. Uh, and we're going to worry a bit less about the actors now. Yeah. Uh, and I think you can kind of see that follow through right into the Marvel era. And this film is dealing with the, the aftermath of it yeah. as well. The other thing that does is it breaks down the linearity of the of the filmmaking process, right? I think it's J.D. Connor, a film historian, talks about this. Like, like we're, we're, the age of, of where we're working now is that, like, you know, there used to be pre-production, production, post-production. Post now some of your post happens at the pre-stage. Yep. It's happening, you know, the, 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 the time is conflated. And animation's always been... Well, like even voice right, work, you know, you know yeah. it, 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 that, as you say, animation, frame by frame, the definition of animation is not the cells, but the stuff that happens in between the frames, the labor mm -hmm. that you don't see, but also the stories of Tom Hanks coming in and doing his voice work for Toy Story yeah. 2, whilst going off and doing a bit of Cast Away, whilst Zemeckis is on a break from 
castaway he makes what lies beneath and there's all these kind of weird fragmented that animation often is part of that that you would come in and do your little voice work but it's stretched across three or four years yeah because they, they then make some of the movie and things like yeah. that right so yeah, yeah. E even movies that aren't animations are now made that way because that that linearity has broken down because of exactly the technology we're yeah. talking about right when you're when you've got that much infusion of digital technology you can you can you can you can make the movie half you make half the movie then decide to remake the other half in a different way and it all collapses together and again this is kind of in the movie this kind of sense of time being mm. both the future and the past squeezed into the present and it's all chaotic and 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 the race is going at, at, at yeah. a pace anyway and who knows what anyone is reacting to because it's, <laughs> it's so it's so, it's yeah. so right. mad what's happening yeah. on screen sometimes like someone's face will pass by and you're like what are you even looking at and, and they're just having to sort of do a default uh, almost like Kuleshov I felt like, for, yeah, the, yeah. for the three of them watching the last sequence of Goodman uh, Richie and, and Sarandon just going oh well, well, yes, exactly. <laughs> what are you looking at but I'm, I'm kind of interested in whether we think that Speed Racer is kind of smart about this. Whether, because you said that it's folded in or that the film is about that compression of time, oh. fragmented labour. So are we saying that Speed Racer has actually got that? So here's the half-baked theory. Is this, like, is this like a Serkian melodrama? About 2008 CGI, like you know, like like you know, is this is this what I hope it is? Well, like you know, because that was the whole thing about Cirque, right? They were, you know, so for audiences who are familiar with 1950s melodramas, listening to a fantasy animation podcast, Douglas Cirque was this like celebrated, well, not celebrated filmmaker in the 50s, made all these kind of quote unquote trashy melodramas about you know housewives having affairs with their gardeners and and family romances and things like that. Yep. Um, and was sort of dis widely dismissed. And he's now seen as one of the greatest Hollywood directors because if you watch his films closely, he's using Technicolor, he's using widescreen, he's using all these new technologies the film industry is giving it, and he's making these kind of savage critiques through the use of style on the very things that he's making. He's making the house seem garish by using Hollywood's own tool against it. Totally. I, I especially love his uh, comment about the title of one of his films, All That Heaven Allows. Sure. He was very happy because the studio would love that title. Like, All That Heaven Allows, it sounds like a paradise. You're allowed everything. He's yeah. like, no, no, no. All That Heaven Allows, as far as he was concerned, heaven was stingy. Uh, yeah. he, heaven, heaven allows you nothing. Oh. Uh, you, we're getting nothing. All That Heaven Allows is nothing. Isn't, in, in that film, <laughs> yeah. there's something like, you know, there's that famous sequence he gives them like a television, doesn't it? Like Jane all of Wyman Night's Secrets yeah, like, exactly, uh, yeah. at your fingertips. And it just looks so depressing because it kind of zooms out on this empty shell of a glossy house. So is so so here's the halfback theory. Is this a sort of Circian stylistic assault on the tools of Hollywood's kind of digitality and, and saying this these tools we've got are actually the things we can use to make comment and critique the very thing we're going in? I say half bait because the face you just pulled, uh, Tim, makes me think. Yeah, I'm not completely sold it myself. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying batting it around. Sure, uh, sure, sure. It, sure. It, what uh, a ride! I mean, that doesn't explain the Australian accents, but it, we'll come it, back it to does, that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's definitely using them to kind of do its sort of slightly tokenistic, anti-capitalist sure. stuff. Um, it doesn't have sadness going on in it, though. There, there, there's, I can imagine a version of this film by probably another set of filmmakers which had a real kind of melancholy and like invested in the family dynamics mm, more yeah. more subtly. Uh, and, and there's a storyline of like a you know a brother that's died and there's stuff that you could plunder you here. Could, right? and yeah. Instead, that's just kind of yeah. packaged up as a kind of last minute twist, which we're a bit like, why? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, thought yeah, yeah. Gonna, I thought Speed was going to meet another girl, and his relationship with Christina Ricci was going to come under stress. Actually, they that they have zero chemistry <laughs> as well. Emil and Christina do not have chemistry in yeah. this film, which is a bit odd. There's yeah, probably, but, but they, they, you can probably film their scenes on different days. Yeah. Okay. So, so what do we do with that? Okay. So is it? Uh, 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 I, I, feel like I think that's I what the Wachowskis think it is. I'll say that. And I think okay. at times it might be. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll go along with that, for sure. Um, I think there are some creative decisions made, like the use the, the representation of the cityscapes and the distinction it makes between kind of representing the world through CGI mm. and, 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 and representing the abstract, like the way it tries to represent speed racers artistic sensibilities at the end with these like shooting flying colors that seems to be distinct between we could use this technology to try to replicate the world as it is 
and mm. make these cityscapes, or we could actually use it in an interesting artistic way that expresses our own individuality and yeah. personality, and 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 we want the the latter. I think that's a thesis running throughout the movie, but that probably only explains about sixty percent of what's going on, and there's a good old forty percent of stuff. Yeah. Going I mean, there's there. so many random bits in this film. We haven't talked about the ninja attack. That no, just please do. Occurs. Let's talk about that. Like yes. two thirds of the way through, there's a kind of you only live twice style ninja attack. Thank you. Sequence. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Which, with beginning with some poison being dripped yeah. into the lips. Obligatory bomb reference. Yeah. Done and dusted. That, that, that is almost identical. <laughs> way it's shot. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then they have this whole kind of flurry of, uh, of, of uh, kind of aggression with this ninja and John Goodman spinning it around his head and then throwing it off a balcony, mm -hmm. um, which was very odd and yeah. comes from nowhere. Uh, and then there's also before that there's a, a scene on a train carriage, which is sort of halfway between like Wild Wild West. And I don't know what else I thought of during that six sequence, but it was it's just, again, where has this come from? Yeah. There's, this, there's this kind of gangster subplot happening on this yes. weird pink train yeah. that is then careening around a mountainside. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, and and no explanation as to what this adds to the, you know, we say about this film for kids. The yeah. plot is not. The yeah. plot is, is for fans of, like, Chinatown like in its yeah. labyrinthine quality. I still don't think I really understand it. Now, it's, it's sort of got gestures towards a plot. It's like, why don't we just have a bit with a train now, okay, uh, with, a, with, a, with a coach now going around a, a mountain? Yeah. And, um, and what, the connection between that is what? That they're, they are... Who are those gangster figures? They are... They're like bankrolling me. Aren't they bankrolling something? In relation to they, are they the, part of like the races? Roger Allen's crew? I think, I think they might yeah. be doing his dirty work. Yeah. Thing is the idea. He's got I see. So, so I think like, we, we will talk about Roger Allen in, in lots more detail. But at some point, he says in the film, "Think about what you saw and heard here." And I'm like, I definitely need to. <laughs> um, but I thought the film was at its strongest where when he's in it, of course. But also the plot that is kind of the first first 45 minutes, which is this this yeah. pull between speed. Like, am I going to follow my father's essentially? The, 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 am I going to stay independent or am I going to sell out? Which is a very common, it crops up in, in you know, loads of movies. My reference point here is going to be the Cars movies. But um, I thought that was an interesting relationship that the film sets up at the beginning because it reminded me of, it reminded me of Wally actually. So this, this relationship between, or the kind of smoothness of automatic production and, and the, the production facility, he talk, when he's taking speed round, Roger Allen's character is taking speed round the, the factory, he talks about automated production and he's like, this is what you could... And, and Wally has been seen as this... Um, Vivian Sobjects written an article about the CGI and the, the reason that she prefers uh, stop motion to CGI is that CGI has this fluid automatic quality, whereas she likes the staccato judderiness of a, of a chicken run or a, or a 1933 King Kong. She thinks that digital technology is too smooth. And this film kind of plays a little bit with that because you've got his far John Goodman as pops his his way of doing things and his mechanic spark. You've got that that kind of yeah, domestic. They got, got grease on there. It's also, it's very color coded as well because uh, red is associated with Rex. Rex's car at the beginning is red. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of red green clashy stuff going on in that first section of the film. Uh, and then, but pointedly, when Roger Allen comes in in a kind of purple, uh, <laughs> uh, this purple lapels, yeah. his entire factory has this kind of gorgeous aristocratic purple all over it. Yeah. Where that's he's coded. But strikingly, if you watch in that scene when the family are all being shown around, yeah. John Goodman is wearing red. John Goodman is like, I'm not having any of this. Yeah. I'm, I'm still on my, my 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 dead son's team, and like you know, I'm not I'm not convinced about any of this at all. Yeah. Um, so I kind of like the way it was doing that. Yeah. yeah. The aristocratic thing is really interesting because there are moments where it sort of reveals behind what is it behind these. Um, pristine renaissance paintings is this garish cg so there's a bit where when he's talking that taking the family around and, and sort of saying we don't just work here we play here too and you've got all these nice gilded frames with with yeah oil paintings oil on canvases and then they sort of like just go up sure and now we're in this cg so there's i don't know there's just a lot I, but I, I thought the sort of that part of the film the first 45 minutes where we're getting at least a tension between keeping the family tradition or selling out to the big corporation that was at where where there was a semblance of a, a plot after he then says spoiler alert no i'm all right and yeah. roger allen 
I thought Timothy Spall. I thought Timothy yeah, Spall was the only person. Loses his I shit. thought Timothy Spall was the only one who could choose scenery, but it turns out Roger Allen's oh, pretty good at it as well. What I really, what I really love. He is amazing. Yeah. I mean, his very first moment when you can't hear him because he's standing outside yeah. with a, a bouquet of flowers and his helicopter is making too much noise. For the first time in the film, you actually want to hear what someone is saying. Yeah. For, for yeah. starters, because yeah, 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 none yeah. of the dialogue before that point can you remember a single line. I mean, yeah. not really. Uh, so you, you suddenly you're like, what has this guy got to say? And he steps in and he's immediately very funny, very smarmy. He's this gourmand obsessed with pancakes. Pancakes of love. And the thing that happens at that moment where he realizes he's not going to get the deal out of Emil Hirsch is that having given off this incredible vibe of doing a Christopher Hitchens impression for basically <laughs> the first half an hour of his performance, it's like the, the face mask comes up and, yeah. oh no, he's Peter underneath. The yeah, <laughs> he's yeah, Peter yeah, Hitchens. Yeah, oh no, yeah, he's yeah. even worse. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And he goes, yeah, and he gives it reason right. And, but like, the, the, that's because I'd forgotten that that happened and I, and I did exactly the same thing watching it this time as I did the first time, which I thought, well, okay, I know I can now do this movie. He signs the contract. He wins a few races. He realizes how corrupt this all is. He abandons mm. the thing. We have the final thing, and he wins it anyway. And like, okay, I'm now going to watch that movie. And it doesn't do that. No, no, no. And it, but what it does do is both incredibly kind of. It suddenly just jumps into this spectacle-led yeah, yeah. desert run. But also, I don't. The plot is what the plot is. He's now going to join a different... Like and just, why is there a team suddenly? Why does it become yeah, a team sport? Yeah. It's like strange. Why It doesn't really explain yeah, that becomes, well. Yeah, it comes like the, 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 the... Oh, what's happening in... The, the, the big bike race in Tour France. France. Oh, thank you. Yes. It becomes the, the sort of the Grand big bike Prix, race yeah. Tour de France. Yeah slash wacky races yes yeah, where people are allowed to like just throw snakes into other people's cars yeah, yeah, yeah. and they and can't like, use a thing that connects up two cars because no. that's illegal and things yeah. get incredibly racially coded don't we get like you know Mongolian like hordes in like uh, in like big spiky uh, cars tossing like yeah mongooses and and I do it does make me think a lot of it for me is is set in the that arcade game in yes. uh, Wreck-It Ralph, the, yes, the, sure. can, the Candyland game, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Candy where, what, what's her name, Candy Cross or whatever it is, yeah, uh, yeah, what's yeah. her name is running around. A lot yeah, of it feels like it's set in that yeah, same yeah, yeah. universe to me. Yeah. yeah, I've got I've got written. This is Super Mario films, oh, you know, like fully, it's Super yeah. Mario Kart, isn't it? It's you and know, part yeah. of me wonders whether um, one yeah. of the reasons for the film's commercial failure is that people would prefer to play that game than yeah. to watch it on a big screen. I don't know. Uh, is it more? It, it, was that the right moment to try and do it as a big screen experience? Because mm. I think that's probably roughly when Mario Kart was like pretty much big. at its peak. And things like the ghost car and stuff like that, right? I mean, that's that's this is iconography from those kind of games. Right? Sure, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Trying to beat the time and all that sort of thing. I just realised it's not Candy Crush, it's Sugar Rush. Sugar, Sugar Rush. Again. Sorry. Okay. And we haven't talked about how, how strangely kind of anti-futuristic it is in some ways, because even though the cars themselves are obviously kind of extremely beyond state-of-the-art, sure. kind of what, you know, directional, futuristic, whatever. The, some of the controls just are like 1980s joysticks and things. And there's, mm. there's, there's actually much less tech in this film than there is in any of the Matrix films, for example. All that digital rain, all that kind of stuff. There's yeah. much less of it. Uh, it's, it feels as though it's it's pointing back to the era of the arcade game, the 1980s, really. Is that, so th is that then part of this half-baked theory, this sort of, the, the film is, is expressing a kind of, it's, it's angry. The film is angry or it's agitated about digital technology and this sort of relationship between technophilia and technophobia and, and how close those things actually are when you when they loop back around. And I'm just I'm wondering whether the film, again, part of its reflexive quality or its smartness might lie in how it how it is thinking about or it's showing what happens when technology is unruly. But but other but that's Hollywood. We've talked about this a couple of episodes ago. But like you know, Jurassic Park is a movie where you pay to watch some people bring some dinosaurs back to life and and watch a film about people the dangers of bringing dinosaurs back to life. Avatar is a movie that has no organic products in any of it, and probably I'll include James Cameron at this rate in that. That goes about how brilliant trees are, right? You know, like they, they, this is this is part of the genius of Hollywood is that it can it can by embedding these contradictions in the film, it can kind of get the cynics and the optimists on board watching the same thing, enjoying the same thing. The difference is, is that this doesn't seem to, this is not about like um, turning primary colors into pure white light, is it? It's about the exact opposite. It's, it's almost a refracting. And it's just throwing all these contradictions up on screen. And some bits are like, oh great. And some bits are like, oh no, like, you know. And I, do think, I do think it really gets away with the the, um, the messaging because Roger Allen is so funny as yeah. well. Because that, that makes it tongue-in-cheek that makes the entire uh, critique in a way 
you, you can read it as tongue-in-cheek. You can read it as deeply earnest if you want to, mm-hmm. but you can also read it as essentially, right, come on, Roger, on you come, yeah. ham it up now, please. Be the worst capitalist's uh, sort of stooge caricature you can possibly imagine. That's what this movie is missing. It needs more irony. He's, mm. he's, he works because he's the only really ironic presence in the film. And the style needs to be as ironic. And that's what Cirque did. Cirque was incredibly ironic. And his films are hilarious if you watch them through that lens. I'm, you can watch some of this that way. And it's usually the scenes with Roger Allen in. But, but I think, the rest I think of it's lacking that irony. You it know? Is, I, I mean, sitting here earlier, I don't think any of us laughed once in the film until the moment Roger Allen arrived. And then we laughed constantly for his whole first scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he, then he again is, later on when he yeah, comes he's back. Just, and... He's constantly very funny. And like no one else is. And I think they definitely missed a trick there. Um, uh, so yeah, th- any other notes on fantasy, Alex, that uh, you've got? I don't, I don't think... I think, I think the key thing I'm, I, I'm still working through is this... Is this is this what's the rhetoric here? Is it optimistic or pessimistic? Because often fantasy is classed, classed as one of those two things, and I actually think what we're exposing here is that what's interesting about the movie, but also quite grating about the movie, depending on what mood you're in, is that these things are not reconciled. They're kind of deliberately, or maybe not even deliberately, but they are formally juxtaposed as you are watching it to the point where things get very confusing. Um, yeah, because actually it's just very noisy and very muddied. But I take noisy and muddied over a lot of the examples you just gave because to me, this is a film trying... There's a kernel of something really interesting going mm-hmm. on surrounded by noise. Mm-hmm. And that kernel's far more interesting than a lot of the things you're mentioning. And there isn't... It is a film that is a that has cynicism in it, but I don't think it's cynical at its heart. I think it's confused at its heart, and I'll take that. Yeah, so that's interesting. That there's a, there's the things that the film's interested in. So about going back to realism, that it's it's not trying to be photo real, but is interested in photo realism. It's not cynical, but it's interested in. Like there's, yeah, there's, yeah, a, yeah. there's a perhaps a little bit of complexity. Or well, that, that line I've quoted a few times, where that, that that conversation about you know it's never been about winning to you, and he says no, it's not about winning, but but winning allows me to keep racing so it, so winning's important and I almost feel like that's the Wachowski's relationship to the business to the industry like you know this isn't about playing with the new technology but the new technology will allow us to make movies on this scale and we want to make movies you know I mean I know Jack, Jackson's talked about that right you know you've either got to work out a way of using this stuff creatively or it'll get used uncreatively and I think some of the stuff we're talking about is them trying to think or, or thinking that through whilst they're using this mm, stuff. I totally agree. I, I think that the push-pull of it that you're talking about trips it up quite a lot yeah. but in an interesting way because it is constantly wanting to win the next race and it's pointing ahead in its style and everything. It's kind of saying, here's what we can do, give us another one, let's have another go. But at the same time, it's it's pausing and lurching to a halt and kind of going, but what about the past? You know, it's, it's future and past and a constant tug. The story is that. Yeah. And we're always doing these strange inserted flashbacks and we're always sort of saying... In a way, those were the good old days, and we're looking at the footage and we're, you know, the newsreel and so on. And we're like, that was racing at its purest, except maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's been corrupt all along. Maybe <laughs> the future is the place to be. You know? And it's always it's asking questions of both the past and the future yeah. uh, as it's happening. Interesting, interesting. Okay, well, I think I, I think I, I mean, there's more to say probably because yeah, it's a, it's a it's a mind bending movie. But thanks for choosing it, Tim, because I think. Um, it was good to revisit it, and it was good to think through some of that stuff with both. I'd like to teach it. I wonder what students would make of this sort of maelstrom of. In, I think, in you've, a got a, I think you've got world. to go with it, wanting to like it, yeah. though, haven't you? I think I can see very easy. The first five minutes it can very easily make people switch. I think that's quite a lazy response because I think there are some movies that are nowhere as chaotic to watch that are as maddening to. to if you think about them a bit longer, but the, the, the style is quite abrasive um, and you're gonna, gonna go with it or, or get lost by it. Yeah, I, yeah, I still don't really know what I think of it, <laughs> but maybe I like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, think I like it a lot more than some of the movies we're referencing that it might be accused of being like. Uh, and I think that's yeah. important to stress. I mean, this isn't the this isn't the emoji movie. And I guess that links to, you know, as we wrap up, um, it's a, you know, this is a big flop. And I guess that's, it's always worth questioning that but like big things that are the biggest flops in in Hollywood history are rarely the quote-unquote worst movies so it says something more about what's going on in 2008 both for the people that made it and for the people who watched it than it does about a film being good or bad right it definitely took a lot more risks than most of the films of that year uh, and I think it had a lot of bad luck to come out 
the same time as Iron Man, which yeah. took far fewer risks and made far more money. Yeah. Uh, but they were just occupying the same space in people's head promotionally, I guess, and people picked yeah. pick one over the they other. They picked the wealthy industrialist over the... Um, they picked Roger Allen, basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah they did. Yeah. Yeah, they there we go. On that bombshell. <laughs> on that bombshell. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, so, Tim, is this part of a, a project you're working on over there's, there? There's, a, there's an idea to do a book about flops, about massive Hollywood flops, okay. um, which would kind of tell the story of Hollywood through them, through flops, from the silent era to now, um, selecting... Not necessarily the most obvious ones you could name, like Heaven's Gate or whatever, because they, they have been written about extensively, but sort of slightly more unusual ones, this would be an option, for example. Sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, going through the decades and just kind of asking why the film, how the film got made, why it was ex mm. why was it so expensive, and why did it So flop? kind of commercial flops and, and or critical flops, uh, I, or a bit I'm, of both? I'm going mainly for the films that just lost a fortune. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but then um, also my own react opinions of them range from... Um, thinking they're complete shit to, sorry, excuse my language, to uh, amazing. Like, so, several, I'm going to put the Magnificent Amsons in there, which was right, you know, sure. pretty much practically killed Orson Welles' directing career uh, and obviously was like the most painful yeah. example of studio intervention in film history, uh, but is just is incredible until it's not, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but then, yeah, there's, and there are a few other films that I really love, uh, the Freakin film Sorcerer. Uh, which, yeah. speaking of coming out at the wrong time, Star Wars just trampled all over it. it just didn't Are you going to do Josie and the Pussycats? Uh, big flop, yeah. I, ha I haven't seen that one. I've got it in my little appendix. It's like, you know, lost lots of money. Ba basically, what we just said for an hour, that yeah. film as well. It's the same. Uh, okay. Same film. I'm not, I've actually said that that is a Serkian uh, critique of capitalism. Um, but we, won't, we haven't got time to talk about maybe, Josie. Maybe a double bill with Spice World? <laughs> sure. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> having, having watched that for yeah. some reason over the last five years, it was probably locked down, I think, drove me to see it. But yeah, that's another film that... It's and those are three movies that are like this one in that if, depending on what pair of glasses you put on when you're watching them, you can either see them as like really subversive critiques or just insane, yeah, it's like, like hypocritical nonsense. Well, they were like, like, I'm I'm a massive product. How do we feel about that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Right. Okay, well, yeah, and and until until that project comes to fruition, um, people can find you at the Telegraph, of course, and then read your go and knock on the door and just say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, Telegraph, it's Tim in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. yeah. please um, do that, or just or just look, look up box office poison on. <laughs> on Twitter and they'll find you yeah, yeah. what's your handle um, it's uh, it's weird it's a weird handle it's at trim underscore obey okay God, right. God knows why I did that in the early days of Twitter. But yeah. it's stuck with me ever since. Instant so. regret. Yeah. And you can find me at Freud is funny. There's another one. Um, <laughs> Mine's just my name with the number seven. Yeah, that's forward it, thinking. So. You see, Normal. that's forward thinking. Normal. But you're the seventh one. I am the seventh one. <laughs> the seventh. My, my MSN and/or Hotmail is something you know, you know, something completely different. Right. No, it's okay. exactly the same. I didn't go down the you know. Fluffy, da 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 thing that when people come up with their. Talking of 2008, MSN. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for coming Thank you, guys. It was great fun. A pleasure. Um, you can find us at fancy-animation.org, read the blog, and access our podcast archive. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fananimresearch, F A N A N I M research. And you can use that, F A N A N I M research, at gmail.com to suggest future footnote episode ideas so uh, we could talk about manga we could talk about anime we could talk about virtual backlots virtual backlots uh, yeah let us know we'll yep. talk about it otherwise we'll see you next time bye